So we're in John chapter 5, and, and today we're going to be starting in verse 31. But just to recap real quick, because this is really like right in the middle of um, a discussion or more or less a, a declaration that Jesus is making, and we're like right in the middle of it. So just to bring you guys' memories all back up to speed in case you, you haven't um, thought about it this morning. Uh, Jesus went to Jerusalem, right in the middle of a big religious festival, a big religious feast, and he went there with the sole intention to bring about this very discussion that he's having. He goes to Jerusalem at this heightened time of religious activity, and he intentionally violates the Sabbath traditions that the Jews have so um, um, joyfully cherished throughout the course of their history. And so he sees this lame man sitting by this pool that they called Bethesda, and all he wants to do is be dipped down into this pool so that he might be healed. But, of course, nobody's willing to, to dip him down in the pool whenever the waters are stirred. And so Jesus sees the man. He knows the man's condition. He's been like this for 38 years. And he tells him, hey, look, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. And, you know, you see, you see the amazing power of Jesus just in the mere fact that he can command dead limbs to move. But you also see his authority in the sense that he can say, hey, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know what the Jews are going to tell you. They told you not to walk on the Sabbath, not to carry your mattress, but that's just all insane. Take it and walk. And he goes and walks. And, and, and immediately, Jesus just assaulted all the traditions that the Jews have established and have based their lives upon. And the Jews instantly picked up on this. And as soon as they saw the blind man or the lame man walking, they're like, hey, who told you to do that? Who told you to carry your mattress? Who told you to walk? And the guy's like, hey, I don't really know who it was, but... This guy who healed me, he's the one who said it. And immediately the Jews are like, well, who's this guy? We need to find him because we need to teach him a lesson. We need to punish him. We need to let him know you don't violate our traditions. You don't violate the laws of God. If you do so, we're going to punish you for it. And, of course, you know, the layman goes and, well, he, he ended up figuring out it was Jesus. And he tells the Jews, hey, look, it was Jesus who told me to get up and to take up my pallet and walk. And immediately the conflict begins. And the Jews approach Jesus, and they're like, hey, you know, who do you think you are to go and heal a man on the Sabbath? And that's when Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look, God the Father has not ceased to work on the Sabbath, and I am identical to God the Father in power and authority, and he's the one who sent me, and so I can do this. I can't break the Sabbath because I'm God. Well, the Jews heard this. Wait, you're saying that you're equal with God? And Jesus is saying, yeah, actually, I am equal with God. And that's why I can do the things that I'm doing. And so when you look at Jesus' response, which really starts from, you know, verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Jesus presents something to the Jews. He presents three, three things to the Jews. First, this declaration of who he is, that he's equal with God in power and in authority and in honor. But also, he goes to give a defense for the claim that he had just made, which we'll look at today. And then he gives a denunciation of the Jewish unbelief. And so you see Jesus responding to the Jews with three different points. First, a declaration. Second, a, um, a defense. And third, he gives a denunciation for the fact that they have failed to believe and the testimony that God the Father has made on his behalf. And so, with that said, I want to start in verse 31, because what we're going to look at today is the defense of Christ and the denunciation of unbelief. And so, in verse 31, follow along with me, Jesus says, If I alone testify about myself, 
My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father and the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, and you do not believe him in whom he sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that by them you'll have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and yet you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you as Moses and whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? So the main message, if you take anything home today of what I'm going to say, and we'll say quite a bit because it's quite a big passage, but there's one thing that that I, I want for you all to take home. It's this. It's that our faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is founded on one authority, and that's the authority of God. There is no higher authority in heaven and on earth that our faith can be founded upon. It's founded upon God alone. And then second, the only reason why people don't believe in the faith that's been granted to us is because people have an inbred, inborn biasness against God from the very beginning. And the clear testimony which God places before men, they willfully suppress that truth and unrighteousness. People don't reject Christ because the evidence is lacking. They don't reject the, the creator of the universe because he hasn't given them enough argumentation. People reject it simply because they don't love him and they don't want him. And so that's the basic message that this text is communicating to us. And so what we'll do is we'll walk through it line by line and, and verse by verse. And that's the message that, that I, I'm, I'm hoping that will emerge out of here. And we'll take more observations along the way as the Holy Spirit um, brings them up. And so in verse 31, Jesus starts his defense. He said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that I can't take you at your word? Are you saying that if you speak, it's a lie, but you need other people to come and speak for you? Like, that's almost what you see Jesus saying. But it's really important to keep in mind that this whole response that Jesus is giving to the Jews is framed in the legal language that they would understand in their day. In other words, these Jews were under the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law had very specified ways in which a legal you know, process, a legal complaint can, can go through in order for the truth of the, um, of the case to be, to be validated. In other words, if you go to Deuteronomy 19.15, you'll, you'll see this. Where Moses writes, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin 
which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed now that's like, there's like the, the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed and and that's exactly what's going on here and in, in, um, I was going to read the rest of that text but I'm not going to um, that's exactly what's going on here in John chapter 5, is that there was this dispute that emerged between the Jews and between Jesus. The Jews are saying, hey, Jesus, you're a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. And Jesus is saying, well, actually, on the other hand, I'm, I'm really not. And if you guys are to follow the law and the proceedings of the law, you guys are going to have to bring forth your witnesses. But don't worry about it. I have my own witnesses, and I'm going to present them to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, look, guys, I don't expect you to take it on my own word, because I have a... a a body of witnesses that will testify on my account, and so I don't even have to. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is really amazing to me, that Jesus is willing to condescend so low to submit to a law that presupposes a life in the beginning. Right? The only reason why there is a law that says we need two or three witnesses is because people are inherently liars from the very beginning. Like, if people actually told the truth, we wouldn't need to have other witnesses. You could just simply say, hey, I'm he, and people say, oh, yeah, that's he. But instead, we have to have people to verify everything that we say because people are inherently liars. And here you have Jesus, who's the Son of God, truth, the embodiment of truth, who can't lie, and yet he's submitting himself to this law that presupposes that he's a liar. Isn't that amazing? And why did he do this? He did this because we can't fulfill this law. That this law of God is reigning over all of us because we're all lawbreakers and we're all guilty. And in order for us to be re redeemed, delivered out from underneath this law to be considered innocent, even though we're guilty of breaking the law, Jesus had to come and fulfill the law for us in every small minutia of the law in order to justly and truthfully take us out from underneath the law so that we can actually stand before God as innocent and not condemned. And this is what you see Jesus doing. He did it for, for all the big, you know, moral areas. He never, you know, committed adultery and he, he never, um, you know, bore false witness. He never did all the big commandments, but even the little small things that people would just overread. Like Jesus knew it and he followed through with it. And that, to me, that's absolutely amazing. But at the other hand, look at the Jews. Like they had this law and they're saying, hey, Jesus, you broke the law, but they're not even following the law. They never went back to Deuteronomy 19 to go and process their complaint. They never followed that commandment. Well, why didn't they follow it? Because it wasn't in their favor. You see, people inherently are biased towards their own position, towards what favors them the most. I saw this just yesterday as I watched a 50-year-old play Pokemon against a 10-year-old. It was a very intense game. But what was so crazy about it is the 50-year-old was, was manipulating and twisting the rules of the game and interpreting the words of the cards in his own favor at the expense of the 10-year-old. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, well, this guy's doing what the Jews were doing to Jesus. You know, Jesus is over here, and, and he's, he's meticulously, faithfully going through every precept of the law and fulfilling it completely, while the Jews, on the other hand, are twisting it and manipulating it to their own benefit. At the expense of Jesus, just like the 50-year-old man, manipulated the games and the rules of Pokemon against the 10-year-old. And what was amazing about it is the 10-year-old actually won, despite the manipulation, which is another wonderful illustration of what happened here, because Jesus ultimately wins. And so, it, it, it's just a shame. But there's something here for us to take home about this. We need to be very aware that our own tendency in life is to manipulate 
circumstances and to manipulate events and to manipulate the rules and to manipulate, manipulate the truth in a way that will benefit us at the expense of another person. We're all tempted to do this, especially when conflict comes our way, especially when we're up, pressed up against you know, a rock in a hard place. This is where you start to find yourself wanting to do this. And we need to look at what Jesus is doing here. In his dispute, these people are wanting to murder him. And he is not willing to bend the rules to manipulate reality so that he can get out from underneath this hard place. He stands firmly with God's Word and lets God's Word dictate how he interacts with other people. And so, when you are going through your life and you are having these kinds of circumstances or this temptation to manipulate and bend the rules, just let the Word of God dictate how you act, how you live, and how you respond to what providence brings your way. And so, the Jews didn't do that, but Jesus did, and that's why we have this wonderful text in front of us. And so he says, if I will testify myself, my testimony is not true. And so basically he goes, and he's going to bring forth three, um, three forms of, of, um, of witnesses. And so in verse 32 he says, there's another who testifies with me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And he's talking about God the Father. He's saying, God the Father testifies about me. And Jesus doesn't cite any other witnesses. God the Father is the only witness that Jesus cites, but God the Father witnesses or testifies about Jesus in three different ways. Through John, the Baptist, through the works of Jesus, and through the Scriptures. That's the testimony of God, of the truthfulness that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Messiah, equal with God in all ways. It's the evidence, the testimony of John the Baptist, of Jesus' miracles, and of the scriptures. And so these are the ones that Jesus cites. And so in verse 33, he says, hey, you sent to John, and he's testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. And so this is what happened. And we saw this just a few, a few chapters ago, that right when John the Baptist was in the middle of his, of his ministry, the, the leaders of Jerusalem heard about all this fuss that was going on. Like virtually... A lot of people were going to be baptized by John. Just from the entire region, people were flocking to John to be baptized and to hear his message. And immediately, Jews, the leaders in Jerusalem, were like, "Well, what's going on with this guy?" Until so they sent a delegation to go and investigate what it was that John the Baptist was preaching and what it was that he was doing, and they wanted to know who he was. And they asked him, "Hey, look, who are you? Are you are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah?" And John's like, I'm none of those things. I'm a voice crawling, crying out in the wilderness. And, and, and that's what John said to them. But he testified to the truth. And the delegation went back to Jerusalem and they said, hey, that guy John, he's a forerunner of the Messiah. That was the truth that he testified about. And, in verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. Like, what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying, actually, John the Baptist's testimony is like invalid. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, yeah, John testified to the truth, but it actually wasn't John's words that were important. It was the fact that God the Father was testifying through John's words to validate me. And this is the task that every preacher and every teacher of the Bible has. My words are not validating Jesus today. It's God the Father, as I faithfully preach this word, that's validating the truth of Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying. I don't need the validation of men. I don't need you to argue for me and to defend me. I have God the Father doing it. And as long as you preach and say what He's saying, then I will have a faithful witness here in this world. And then Jesus says, and I say these things that you might be saved. And this is just another amazing 
feature of our Lord Jesus because here these men are trying to murder him and yet he's still trying to save them. Like, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've met several people who, you know, object to this truth that God doesn't save everyone. Like, hey, look, if, if I was God, I would save everybody. Like, I, I wouldn't let those people die and go to hell. I would save everybody. Like, I can't believe in a God who would actually punish people and send them to hell. I just, that's not something that I can actually believe in, I hear people say. And the assumption behind there is that they are far more merciful than God. But if you actually really think about it, people are, have absolutely no mercy. A person cuts you off on the interstate. And if you don't have a sanctified mind, you'll essentially damn them to hell. It's just what people do. You, you, you see this, how ferocious people are by looking at social media. People are not inherently merciful. We're not forgiving. And as soon as somebody crosses you in any significant way, you see how hard it is for you to extend mercy and grace and um, love and charity towards your opponents and towards your enemies. People are not naturally like this. And so here Jesus saying, hey, look, I'm saying these things so you might be saved is actually very unique. Because nobody acts like this. Unless they're imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is actually good news because Jesus is actually speaking. He's saying, I'm saying these things that you might be saved. It's a bad day when Jesus stops saying things. There was a time, not too long after this event, where Jesus was found in the exact same situation before the high priest. And they were bringing all their accusations against him. And Jesus remained silent. He didn't testify to himself. He remained silent before his accusers because he wasn't working for their salvation at that point in time. The good news, though, is that today Jesus is speaking to you. Today, his mouth is opened, which means today you can be saved. Today, he is offering salvation through the testimony of, um, of his Father. And so, keep in mind, this might be the only time Jesus is speaking. One day... He will remain silent. And then the opportunity for salvation is over. And so just don't take this moment at this present time lightly because Jesus is actually speaking so that you may be saved. And if you are saved, then praise God. And he says, he was in verse 35, John was a lamp that was burning and shining and you were, um, and you were, not, and you were willing to rejoice while he was in this light. Basically, all this is saying is that the Jews really liked John the Baptist. Like they thought he was an awesome guy. They thought he was an actually, you know, a real prophet. The only problem is they didn't believe his message. They liked the guy, but they didn't like his message. That's why I like the prayer every time the musicians quit or they, they, they ask that, that God would, would hide the preacher behind the cross. Right? So it's Jesus who's seen and not the person who's speaking. What was wrong with the Jews right here is that they were actually putting John the Baptist in front of the cross. They were ignoring his message because they liked the personality of the one who was preaching. And that's a dreadful, dreadful error for anybody to fall into. And it's a, and it's a threat to every church who has, um, who has a good preacher. And so I'm not going to stay on that time. But just be mindful as Redeemer grows. And um, because um, Richard's an awesome guy, but um, he doesn't ever need to be the, the figure point of the ministry here. It's the message that counts. It's not the one who's preaching. And so, 
Um, there's lots of errors that come along with that, but uh, we, we don't have time to, to dwell upon verse 35 any longer because the next witness is the witness of Jesus' works, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. And Jesus isn't saying that, that as far as the value of being able to verify the truthfulness of his claim um, works is a, is a better witness. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying in terms of clarity. It's easy to sit there and look at John the Baptist and be like, man, that guy was a weirdo. He wore camel's hair and he ate buds in the desert. Like, he could have very well been out of his mind when he said Jesus was the Messiah. But what you can't argue with is the works that Jesus performed. And Jesus is particularly talking about his miracles, but there's far more than that. But we'll just focus on miracles for, for time's sake. The, the miracles of Jesus were so absolutely clear that 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 there was no naturalistic explanation for him. Jesus turned the water into wine. No, nobody in that day said, you know, maybe he just swapped it out. Like you, you just, when you saw a miracle from Jesus, you knew that was supernatural. So much so that there was only two options that people were speaking about back then. It was either Jesus was doing this by the power of Satan or he was doing it by the power of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus and like, hey, look, I know that God's with you because only you could do this if God was with you. And so when you're thinking about testimonies of Jesus, we don't live in a day where, where, where God is vindicating or verifying his message on the basis of miracles anymore. The message has been communicated. It's here. It's sealed in the book. But God's still working. Just think about what was going on in your own life. Think about the, the conversion that you had from darkness to light. That didn't happen because you were smarter than everybody else. The only reason why we're Christians is because God subdued our hearts and showed us the Lord Jesus Christ and we saw Him as our all and our everything and our hearts fell in love with Him. It's a supernatural work that takes a heart from the spiritual deadness into the spiritual life. Jesus' works when He was uh, healing the lame and healing the blind were certainly powerful works and demonstrated the work of God um, very clearly, but a more powerful work is bringing us from faithlessness to faith. When you think about how hard it is to win over an enemy, and I don't know if any of you have ever tried to win over an enemy, but it's extremely hard to meet somebody who hates you and to convince that person that you're actually lovable. It just it doesn't ever happen, but this is exactly what God did in your hearts if you're a Christian. But you hated God. You were, had a natural enmity between, between you and, and, and Him. And He didn't just come and twist your arm and like force you to submit and follow Him. He actually apprehended your heart with love. He convinced you that you should love Him. And He showed you how lovable He was. And then you loved Him. And none of us can do that other than God. And that's a powerful testimony to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah because He's doing that every single day. And if you're a Christian, you did it in your own heart. Then you have the witness of the Father in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, He's testified of me. You've neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him who He has sent. Now, this is where Jesus starts to mix in his denunciation of Jewish unbelief with his last witness. And so he's giving a defense for his claims to divinity, and he's doing so 
Um, but at this point, he's mixing it in with the denunciation. And so the final witness is the witness of God the Father through the scriptures. But now he's starting to introduce the Jewish unbelief. And so he says, and the Father who sent me, he's testified of me, but you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. What's Jesus saying? He's saying you haven't experienced God. That's what he's saying. But God testified of me, but you wouldn't know about it because you haven't experienced him. And then he says, and how is it you haven't experienced him? You do not have his word abiding in you. You see, this is an important detail to keep in mind that you will never have an experience of God unless you have the word of God abiding in your heart. You can't experience God. You can't have a relationship with God apart from his word. You can't do that. Lots of people want to go and say, I have a relationship with God, but I don't really believe that Bible. Lots of people flatter themselves with that idea. They take security in this relationship that they think they have with God, yet they have it when they don't have God's Word abiding in their hearts. Jesus is saying, if you don't have God's Word abiding in your heart, you can't have an experience with God. You can't hear His voice. You can't see His form. You can't do it. But it gets a little bit more than just that, because what is the Word of God? It's nothing, nothing less than the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. One of his disciples came to him one day and said, Hey, Jesus, I'll be happy and content if you just show me the Father. And Jesus was like, Man, have I been with you for this long and you still haven't realized that he who sees me has seen the Father? In other words, you'll never truly know who the Lord Jesus Christ is unless you have the Word of God abiding in your heart. You'll never know God. You'll never experience Him. You'll never know His salvation. You'll never know anything of the sort. If God's word is not abiding in you, and Jesus says, for you do not have his word abiding in your heart, for you do not believe him who he sent. The reason why the word wasn't abiding is because they didn't believe. And, I, and we'll actually get back into that when we get down to um, these later passages. And so in verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now this is amazing. You see, the, the, the Jewish people were not despisers of divine revelation. They, 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 they meticulously and studiously searched through the scriptures. That was their big thing. They actually wore it on their heads. You know, like they took a little roll and they stuck it to their head and they thought that they were showing honor to the word of God by these phylacteries. It was insane. They wrote them on their doorposts. It's everything. It was just the word of God was their thing, but they actually thought that God's word is what saved them. They missed the point. God's Word doesn't save anybody. This Bible does not save you. This Bible can't save you. It's just a book. There's, there's nothing inherently holy about the pages that this is. That this is. There's just nothing here. The, the, the value in this is that this Word communicates Jesus Christ to us. That's the value in the Bible. The only one that saves is Jesus. And there's, there, there's, a, there's a, a major issue here because we have a tendency to reduce the Bible down to something that it's really not. Some people reduce the Bible down to just an ethical code. It just teaches us the right way in which to live. It's our, it's our field guide for living life. And that's all the Bible is to them. Others look at the Bible as this system of theology. It just tells them the right things in which to, to, to believe. And so they see it as, hey, there's all these doctrines and wonderful ideas in the Bible, and I like all this information. And so they think that that's what the Bible's about is just giving them a system of theology in which to, to believe. Other people look at the Bible as this comprehensive guide to having a, a comprehensive and, and coherent worldview. And so all the Bible is, is it teaches them how to view the world. Other people view the Bible as this foundation for our national identity. That the Bible is what the Constitution is based upon. And so we're American because we have the Bible. 
And the, the Bible is all of these things, but it's not merely any of them. And, and the moment that we reduce the Bible down to something that it's not, we miss the whole point of the Bible. The Bible primarily is communicating to us who the Lord Jesus Christ is, showing us His person, His nature, His work, so that we might cherish Him and love Him and follow Him and believe in Him and therefore have everlasting life. But the moment that we divorce Jesus from Scripture or confuse Jesus with a national identity or with a system of theology or with an ethical code, we've just done what the Jews have done and we'll miss eternal life. And so as you guys look and search through your Scriptures and as you guys dive into this word here, keep in mind that this word is primarily a testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ and Anything else that you come across, if you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't see Jesus in it, it's completely useless. What's the point in having a Christian worldview if you're not a Christian? What's the point in having this Christian national heritage if you don't believe in Jesus? What's the point in any of it? What's the point in being a strong, ethical human being and knowing exactly what to do in every circumstance because you're a student of the Bible but you don't believe in Jesus? What's the point? Eventually, you'll die and you'll be judged and it'll be the end of it, and there'll be no more need to be ethical, and no more need to be an American, and no more need to have a coherent worldview, because none of those things are valuable in hell. And so, Jesus says to the Jews, you missed the whole point in verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have everlasting life. And this is what brings us to the second side of the main idea of this text. That's that people reject Jesus because they have an inherent biasness towards Jesus from the very beginning. It's not that people go and they, they're neutral and they weigh out the arguments and they just follow the arguments to where it leads and wherever it leads is where they land and they say, hey, look, I followed the arguments. I didn't see Jesus in any of it, so therefore I'm not a Christian. That's not how people come to their conclusions in the world. People come to their conclusion first based upon their heart and what they want the most and then they reason their way to to their conclusion. Everybody argues in a circle if they reject Christ. They start with unbelief. They argue themselves back around to unbelief. That's how people are. They also suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And this is what Jesus is saying. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The reason why they didn't come is they just simply didn't want to. The testimony of God's clear. The verdict is in. The conclusion's already been made. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. We don't need anything more. We don't need any more evidence. We don't need any more miracles. We don't need additional revelation. It's all here and it's all presented before us. And either we're going to believe or we're not going to believe. But there's not a system of arguments that's going to bring a person to faith. Their heart has got to be dealt with. And this is how Jesus continues. And he says, but I know you. There's in verse 41. I mean, I don't receive glory from men, but I know you. That you don't have the love of God in yourselves. You see, Jesus is contrasting himself with these, with these, this Jewish people. He's saying, hey, look, I don't receive glory from him, but I know you, that you don't have the love of God in yourself. What's Jesus saying? He's saying simply this. You guys are all going around this entire world seeking glory from one another. That's all you care about. All you care about is impressing the people around you. All you care about is following all the major ideas and the popular beliefs of the day, but you don't care a thing about the love of God. And Jesus is saying, but guess what? I don't care about your praise. And I don't care about any glory you have to offer to me because I have glory for my Father and that's all that I care about. And so he goes on and he says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Essentially, Jesus is saying, the reason why nobody believes in me is because they just want glory here on earth. They just want glory from one another. They have no interest in the glory of the Father. They have no interest in being pleasing to Him. And this is a challenging text because I'll be honest with you all. I want you guys to think I'm awesome. Like it, 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 it's, it's tempting to, to seek the praise of other people. It's really hard not to boast. It's really hard not to bring attention to yourself because you actually want people to, to say your name. You actually want people to, to look at you and say, you're awesome. I really like you. Like, this is what we want. Like, we get validation from people. This is what we're actually seeking and, and searching out. And this is why this lame man actually missed the point. Like, he was healed by Jesus, and yet he betrayed Jesus. Why? Why did he go and sell Jesus out? Why is it that here he is 38 years laying crippled next to this pool and he just can't get help and then now he's well and he's sitting in front of society and he picks society over Jesus? Why does he go back and snitch Jesus out? What was going on in the man's mind? He feared men more than he feared God. He wanted their acceptance more than he wanted to be accepted by Jesus. He was afraid of their wrath more than he was afraid of the wrath of the Father. And so he chose them over Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what all these people were doing that were rejecting Jesus. They just wanted to be, you know, have their own back-patting party. That's just all they wanted to do. And there's a challenge to us as disciples of Christ that we don't fall into this way of thinking because then we'll miss Jesus. Our whole purpose in this world is to make Jesus known and to magnify Him by us decreasing so that He can increase. That's the whole point of this thing. And we'll never be able to do that if we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And so I'm text is challenging you today to check your heart and figure out where do you fall in the spectrum between pleasing people and then pleasing God. But there's only one thing worth seeking in this world, and that is the glory of God. His praise in your life and His glory magnified because all this other stuff is just passing away. Like, what does it matter if you guys think I'm awesome? Like, honestly. Not, nothing against you guys, but and we're all going to end up in the ground. And, and, and then the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us that the dead aren't even remembered. Like, really? There's been millions of people who lived on this world. We know who they are. There's just been a few select people today that we actually know about. We really don't know about them anyways. They're just statues that you need a history degree to know about. We just don't... It doesn't matter. And so let's not seek after the praise and the glory of this world. It's all passing away. And it all means absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters is our Lord Jesus Christ and His glory alone. And that's it. And the moment that Christ is the supreme object of our hearts and the supreme object of our desires is when we'll be happy to say, God the Father is the only witness, the only one that I need. Everything else is just completely irrelevant. And so as we conclude, I want you all to be encouraged by this because we have a great mission. It's a hard mission to actually go out into the world and share Christ with people. This is where the love of the world, seeking the praise of men, actually comes in contact, conflict with seeking the praise of God. 
I've noticed in my own witnessing and in my own sharing of the faith with others, in my own testifying of the Christ, that the major hindrance that I have isn't a lack of knowledge. It's not that I don't know what to say, but I don't want the person not to like me. I don't want to be rejected by that person. And then sometimes I'm, I'm ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes I'm ashamed of the Bible. I almost want to say, well, you know, if you don't believe in the Bible, that's okay. Let's just start on some other ground. Sometimes I'm like, if you don't believe in Jesus, well, let's just talk about something that we do believe in and just get along. This is things that, that I struggle with, but I know every Christian struggles with when it comes to sharing our faith. But what Paul says is, like, hey, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. We don't need to have this extensive body of knowledge to share Christ. We just need to simply content ourselves with God the Father is testifying through us and all our job is to say is Jesus is the Christ. That's all we have to do. God's going to do all the rest. And then at the other side of that is be encouraged. That's when you are rejected. The person didn't reject you because of you. They rejected you because they hate the God that you're testifying about. It had nothing to do with you. And so it's okay to be rejected. It's okay to go and share your faith. Because it doesn't depend upon your ability to articulate the, um, you know, the three circles or two, which is pretty easy to articulate. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter in your ability to remember any of that or, or, or to articulate the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to communicate. And God will testify through that. And if people reject it, it's because, not because of you, it's because of the content of their own hearts. And only God can deal with that. And so be encouraged and be confident and be emboldened to do what Jesus is doing here in the face of even the deepest of hostility. And so let us pray. Father, how wonderful and amazing our Savior is and that in the face of hostility and danger, he was bold and confident in sharing and declaring his identity and defending his faith, but yet his faith was so strong that he didn't need to take the testimony of other men. He could just simply say, you were behind him, and that was sufficient enough for him. And Father, I pray that you would give us all this courage and that you would also give us empathy, for we were all saved out of the, the great mass of humanity who all had an inbred hatred towards you. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't look down upon those in the world who haven't come to know your Son, Jesus, but that we would look at them and we would see the misery in which they, they, they live. This, this, this circuit that they live in where they deny you and then justify their unbelief with this argumentation, oh, what a terrible cycle that is to be in, Father. And I pray that you would use us as witnesses in this world and that we would share the truth of the gospel with all those who we encounter and that we might be confident to know that you're the one doing the work behind the words that we share. In Jesus' name, amen.